we are going to spend our time um, reading through the book of Mark or the gospel of Mark. And if you're familiar with the Bible, um, you know there are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, And Mark is kind of the little brother to the rest of the gospels. It's shorter. It's written very concisely, really densely packed. It's also written with a grammar that just kind of flows and is really easy to understand, more so than any of the other Gospels. And why this matters to us and why this is important um, to start with is because those of you who attended the Bible study on Tuesday, we, Sean gave a very cryptic thing about context. And so this, what is it? Who remembers it? From Jesse. Is that right? Okay, good. A text without a context is a con. If you want to know what that means, come on Tuesday to the Bible study. Um, But we want to look at the context of Mark because it's most likely that Mark wrote this gospel while imprisoned in Rome, which means he was writing it for a, a Roman Gentile audience. And what that means is he wasn't writing for an audience of primarily new Christians, like a lot of the epistles were written, and he also wasn't writing to an audience of primarily Jews, like some of the other Gospels was written. He wrote to a people who had a limited idea of who Jesus was, and he wrote to a people who also, also had a limited idea of what the Old Testament was and those prophecies that were in the Old Testament. And so as I looked at this, it's just like Mark wrote this specifically um, for university campuses. He wrote this for people who have short attention spans, who may know the folk tales of Jesus, but don't really know the truth of who Jesus is, who may have heard of this guy who came, who was over in Israel and did some cool stuff, but that's about it. Um, He wrote for the hustle and bustle of an intellectual city, but he did it in a way that was easy for the layperson to understand. But what I love most about the book of Mark is that in its short and snappy writing, Mark really wants us to know who Jesus is. And not simply to know who Jesus is, but he wants us to be transformed and changed through knowing who Jesus is. And this is important to us because we live in a culture which is becoming increasingly post-Christian. And there's still a lot of Jesus talk going on. You see it all over the place of people mentioning him. But, you see, in order to respond rightly to Jesus, we have to have a clear picture of who Jesus is. In order to worship Jesus rightly, in order to think of Jesus rightly, in order to respond to Jesus rightly, you have to know Jesus well. You have to know who he is, you have to know why he came, and you have to know what it meant. For instance, if a crazy, drunk college student wandered in here right now and told all of you to run, we would probably not run. We would probably laugh and maybe look at each other with confusing looks. If uh, a normal college student came in here and told you to run, we'd maybe consider it. If a professor came in and told us to get out of here and run, we probably would, but it would probably be like a saunter and we'd probably be questioning what was going on and why we should be doing it. But if a man in a big jacket that said bomb squad on it came in here and told you to run, we would all run fast with decisiveness and out of a clear idea of what that meant because we understood the authority and the knowledge of the person who came in to issue that command. You see, our response to someone is directly proportional to their perceived authority in our lives. Our response is directly proportional to their perceived authority in our lives. And Mark is writing this so that we have a good view of Jesus, so that we can respond rightly. 
He wants to force us to see Jesus, to see his works, to see his teaching, and respond to that. And so tonight, um, in the first part of the first chapter, Mark is, is giving us kind of four quick stories. And in those stories, we're going to see three statements that Mark wants us to know about Jesus. So as we look at the first part of Mark, let's open in prayer um, again because uh, we need it. So, Lord, uh, we thank you for the book of Mark. We thank you for the University of Montana. We thank you for the students uh, who are here. And, Lord, we pray as we look at your word um, that you do provide for us a clearer picture of Christ. Whether we have an idea of who Christ is or whether Christ is kind of vague and unfamiliar to us, Lord, we pray you open our eyes to see the true reality of who you are and that our hearts are won over with worship towards you. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. So let's start. We're going to look at the first uh, eight verses that Jasmine just read, and so I'm going to read them again for us. Um, If you have your Bibles, you can open there. It'll be up on the screens as well. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, I love how Mark starts out his gospel because he cuts out um, the Christmas story. He cuts out the birth of Jesus. He cuts out the scene with the wise men and the full inn and the shepherds. And now all that stuff is important. When I say I'm happy he cut out the Christmas stuff doesn't mean I hate portions of the gospel. But it means that oftentimes I think our culture looks at all the stuff surrounding Jesus' birth and we tend to promote Christmas over Christ. And I realize this, like Facebook is where I go when I'm having a good day and I just kind of want to be frustrated with people. Um, And so in August, uh, last week, I was in a good mood and I just wanted to be brought back to reality. Um, And I got on Facebook and you guys have probably seen this, but in August, you see these promotions for like Christians keeping Christ in Christmas. And that's good. And that's great. And I'm all for that. But it does no good to keep Christ in Christmas if Christ is lost in our proclamation. In other words, just having the word Christmas and making that part of our culture doesn't mean anything if people don't know who Christ is. It becomes a word, and words don't save people. And while it is important that Jesus was born of a virgin, and while the scene with the wise men and the shepherds do much to announce the royal and triumphant entry of the coming king, Christ didn't come to be remembered as a baby. He came to be remembered as a savior who lived, worked, and died for your salvation. See, Christmas doesn't save people. The person and work of Christ saves people. And so instead, what Mark does is is he begins with a proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the first thing he says. The proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that's the first, first thing Mark wants us to know tonight about Jesus. 
is that Jesus is the Son of God. And right off the bat, Mark is doing what what I said he wants to do. He wants to give you a clear and right picture of who Jesus is. But what does this mean? Son of God. We've all heard this. Wasn't there a movie that came out earlier this year, a Christian movie called Son of God? It's a phrase that, that gets passed around a lot. It's kind of familiar. People would, their ears would perk and they'd remember something when they heard Son of God. But what does it really mean? Does it mean the same as when I say, my son is Owen, the son of Tyler? Well, yes and no. Yes, in the sense that, that Owen is made of the same material I am made, and he relates relationally to me as my son. But no, in that God isn't man. Owen, Owen is man from me. God is not material, nor is he man. So he doesn't have sons in the way that we have sons. Nor was Christ ever born before he came to earth. Jesus existed in eternity forever with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. It wasn't that Jesus was just born one day and there is the Son of God. He, ha- he didn't have a beginning. And we see this in John 17, 24, where Jesus is talking to his Father. And again, we see him relating to God the Father as Father. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundations of the world. And so the storyline of Jesus doesn't pick up like your storyline does. At some point in history, you were not, and then you were. That's not the story of Jesus. It wasn't that Jesus once did not exist, and then he existed. It's that Jesus always existed in eternity with God the Father, you see, the phrase God, Son of God, it shows Jesus' relationship to the Father. He seeks to submit to the Father as a son submits to the Father, but it also shows the nature of Jesus. Jesus is God. That's what that son means. It defines the relationship, but it also defines the nature. Jesus is God. That's what Mark, that's essential to Mark's evangelization. Evangelism. I apparently forget how to say words when I'm up here. That's central to Mark's evangelism. The first thing he wants us to know is Jesus is God. It's not only essential to Mark's evangelism, it's it's essential to our salvation. That is a, a building block of what Jesus is and what he came to do. And even Mark, who tries to limit the amount of Old Testament references that are in his book, Mark thinks this is so important that he quotes um, actually two Old Testament passages to prove this point. And we see those in verses uh, 2 and 3. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, on the surface level, we look at that, and this seems to be a passage about John the Baptist. And it is. Grammatically, it proceeds where John the Baptist is there. Jasmine read it. We read it. John the Baptist is coming onto the scene. Um, But to understand really the secondary theological significance of what's going on in these passages, um, we need to look at the two uh, prophets that Mark is quoting from here. The first is Malachi 3.1. And God is talking here. So the, the speaker is God himself. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And then in Isaiah 40, verse 3, the prophet says this, A voice cries in the wilderness, 
prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And so if you notice there, it's prophesying someone who's coming before, but who in the Old Testament is he prophesying? He's not prophesying a sub-God yet to come. He's not prophesying a good teacher or a moral model or or an all-around good encourager or someone that just seems to bring world peace and all this good stuff. He's prophesying God himself coming to the earth. And so Mark, in using those passages, he's not announcing Jesus as another prophet. He's not announcing him as another religious figure. He's announcing Jesus as God himself come. The one who the Old Testament pointed to, that God has come to earth. He's proclaiming the way of God who took form in Christ as part of the Trinity. And so now we see this bold statement. Jesus is the Son of God. It speaks to his relationship with God. It speaks to his nature as God. But now we meet this voice in the wilderness. Easily one of the most interesting characters in all the Bible is Johnny the Redneck Prophet, right? Roaming around, covered in animal hair, Smells bad, eats bugs, eats honey, shops at Cabela's, like weird stuff like that, right? You guys have seen it. Have you guys been to Cabela's? It's like there's Bob Ward's class and Cabela's class, okay? Like less teeth, more hair, and that's what John the Baptist is. He's kind of roaming around, and he's that crazy guy who, like we have him on campus. They come, and they just start yelling, repent for your sins, and we're all like, I'm not a Christian. I don't know you, and yet it's working, (laughs) People are flocking to John the Baptist. Not only are they flocking, he's popular. A lot of people like John the Baptist. And Mark hints at this. He says people are coming from all Judea and all of Jerusalem, and they're coming to him and confessing their sins and receiving a baptism of repentance. And the other Gospels fill this in a little more, and they they really show the huge following of John. And mind you, John was very polemic. There were those who hated John, who will eventually kill John. And then there were people who loved John. Not many people were neutral towards him. You either loved it or you hated it. It's like physics, okay? You either love your physics class or you hate it. People love John the Baptist or they hate him. And those who loved him were all out with it. They were crowding around him, following him around the countryside, proclaiming him as the next Elijah, the next great prophet, one who should be followed, one who should be worshipped. In the other Gospels, we see interactions between John's disciples as they see Jesus coming, and they're worried. They're like, John, what if people start following Jesus over you? That's how important people were choosing John the Baptist over Jesus. That's how big of a deal John was. But look at what John's message was in verses 7 and 8. And he preached out in the boondocks, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You see, John knew he was just a doorman. John knew that he was preparing the way of God himself coming. He knew someone was coming, and not not only did he know someone was coming, but he knew someone unique was coming. Someone who did things that, John is called John the Baptizer. If anyone did stellar jobs baptizing, it's John the Baptizer. He says, I baptize you with water, but someone else is coming who's going to baptize you with something greater. And this uniqueness of God, this uniqueness of Jesus is on display in the next portion of the text. Mark 1, 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee 
and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So here we see Jesus going out to see John the Baptist and John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. And when he, that's Jesus, came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being tore open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Do you see the affirmation of Jesus there? You see, a handful of years ago, I got baptized. And you know what happened when I was baptized? Not a lot. I barely, like, we have a horse trough at church. I'm, I don't fit in horse troughs. So, like, I'm not sure my baptism was legit because it only came up to, like, here. And people were, like, trying to force me under. It was really, it looked violent. Um, but it was a pretty lackluster baptism. No voice from heaven. No spirit descending on me like a dove. But I'm a man. And yet when Jesus is baptized, God tears the heavens open. The Holy Spirit, like a dove out of heaven, which is opposite of a bat out of hell, like a dove out of heaven comes down and rests on him. And the booming cosmic voice of God Almighty says, this is my son, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Now we, 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 we hear that. Well, of course he's pleased. He's Jesus. But we have to be mindful of who Jesus is in order for that pleasure to really inform our worship of Jesus. Because what had Jesus done up till this point? Not a lot. In fact, in all four of the Gospels, it wasn't until after Jesus was baptized that he started his public ministry. Jesus hadn't preached. He hadn't baptized anyone. No miracles. No healings. No cross. Not even really known. And yet God looks at Jesus he says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And that speaks to the divinity of who Jesus is. Because all that Jesus did is only relevant because of who Jesus is. God looked at Jesus before he had done anything and was deeply pleased in him because he was the reflection of his own glory. This Jesus is not like any other man. That's to be something we see time and time again in the book of Mark. And this really puts our fear of man in perspective, doesn't it? We always try to impress people. I'm in seminary, and uh, I remember I was on, on, in a video class once, and so they were like Skyping me in. Um, and I, I want to look good to my seminary. Who, who doesn't want to look good to their professors? Um, and so, you know, I go in there, and you just... Sometimes when you want to look good, you just don't say anything unless you really know it, and then you maybe say something. Um, but I was talking to uh, one of the classmates on the chat bar, and uh, he asked me how I was doing, like, understanding this, because it, it was like a debate on the providence and sovereignty of God, and it was getting super philosophical. And uh, he's like, hey, I'm really wrestling with this. And in my prideful heart, I can tell you I wasn't wrestling as much as he was, but I wanted to, like, make him feel better. And so I said, yeah, man, this stuff is pretty philosophical and kind of over my head. Apparently there's a reply all function that needs to be turned off. <laughs> so not only does it get sent to the entire class, but my professor reads it in front of the whole class. And he's like, it's okay, Tyler. It's big for my brain too. And I was just like, oh, I want to die. <laughs> and we all do that. Whether it's professors, whether it's uh, parents, 
whether it's your boyfriend or your girlfriend, whether it's your boss, we all try to, to look good in front of some people. We all try to, to have people be pleased with us. Yet, through Jesus Christ, through his works, which is what John Lumen talked about this weekend at Sovereign Hope, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, God Almighty looks at you with pleasure because of who Jesus is. I care less about professors, or I hope I do, when I know how I look before God because of who Jesus is. Now, in the Gospel of John, we get a little added story after Jesus' baptism. Um, that's going to be a common phrase. In other Gospels, we get a little more details. You're going to hear that a lot as we go through this book. Um, but picking up in verse 35 of chapter 1, so in verse 34, Jesus is baptized. In verse 35, we pick this up. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. You see, this is important because John was, as we said, wildly popular with the people who followed him. And yet John's primary goal was not to be followed, but to point people to the one who should be followed, which is Jesus. You see, this is why GCF exists. This is why Sovereign Hope exists, is we want you to be a follower of Jesus over a follower of men, even more so than a follower of men who point to Jesus, who proclaim to Jesus. Jesus himself, God came, he spoke, he died, he rose again. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus over everything. Follow Jesus over culture. Follow Jesus over passions. Follow Jesus over questions. Follow Jesus. Why? Not because I tell you to. Follow Jesus because he's the son of God. Follow Jesus because there is no greater authority in heaven and on earth. This brings us to the final two things Mark is going to teach us about Jesus. We see the second point, verses 12 through 13. The Spirit, the same Spirit that uh, came and descended on him like a dove. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. And this, uh, bar none, is the shortest uh, account of Jesus' temptation in the desert, but it's wildly important. Because you see in the other Gospels that while Jesus was in the desert, he was tempted by Satan in various ways. Satan offered him um, control over all the world if Jesus would just bow down and worship him. Satan tried to trip Jesus up by using scripture, but Jesus stepped through that trap and Jesus rightly interpreted the word of God. Satan threw everything he had at Jesus, but Jesus resisted and didn't sin. For 40 days in the desert, Jesus went toe-to-toe with the devil and was found sinless. You see, this is important because in Romans, Jesus is called the second Adam. And the first Adam, looking way back to Adam and Eve, the first Adam was also tempted, not for 40 days, but for a moment, for a paragraph in your Bible, was tempted by Satan. And Satan used the same tactics he used with Jesus. Did God really say? Did God really say, if you eat this, you'll die? And the first Adam fell, and he sinned. And from that point was pain and death and suffering as a result of that sin. Fast forward a hundred of years, and God has chosen his people, Israel, 
And he says, I'm making a covenant with you. You follow me, you obey me, and things will go well. You disobey me and things will go poorly. He set the ground rules right off the bat. And what do the people do? They sin and they disobey God. And so God says, all right, Israel, I was going to bring you into the promised land, but for 40 years, you'll go wander in the desert as a result of your sin. And during those 40 years, that time allotted for Israel's repentance, we see Israel's heart is just hardened and hardened and hardened by sin. For 40 years, Israel's heart proved capable of nothing but sin. Yet, Jesus, as the second Adam, Jesus, as the true Israel, went into the desert for 40 days, was tempted by Satan himself, and came away victorious. Jesus is greater than man. What does this teach us about Jesus? Well, after Adam first sinned, God cursed the serpent, he cursed the man, and he cursed the woman, but he gave us a hope in Genesis 3.15. It says this, God's speaking, I'll put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to the serpent here. I'll put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, that is the woman's offspring, shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. You see, what happened in Jesus doing this means that the offspring of God, the one who will bruise the head of the devil, had come because he had stood up to the devil and come away victorious. Jesus is stronger than the devil. That's the second point Mark wants us to know, is that Jesus is victorious over Satan. You see, for, I don't know how many pages my Old Testament is, just about 800 pages, man proved one thing, and that is he is incapable of saving himself. Incapable of not sinning, incapable of holiness, incapable of perfection, incapable of true joy, incapable of true satisfaction. And ever since Adam, man fought sin and fought against the devil and came away crippled and wounded and dead. We have no power over sin, no power over our hearts, no power over our desires, no power over our death sentence, and our hearts desired evil, and they desired deceit, and lust, and power, and hatred, and greed, and we were slaves to our own desires. And many of you realize that feeling today where you know things, I shouldn't do this, and yet we desire it. And we desire it. Paul himself talks about that. The things I do want to do, I don't desire. And the things I don't want to do, I do desire. He's a slave to his own heart. But Jesus came. And before Jesus ever even went to the cross, he was led into the wilderness by the Spirit to show and foreshadow the greater victory that was going to come over Satan. The greater victory that was going to come to free the hearts of man. You see, Jesus came not just to bring us salvation, He came to defeat sin and the devil once and for all, and it was never a fair fight. The devil didn't stand a chance because the Son of God had come. And Jesus in the desert beat temptation so that through his power, those who believe in him may no longer be held by the power of sin. Jesus came as a lamb, but he goes out like a lion. Jesus came to conquer sin in a way that only God can. Jesus was not like us. Here are the last two verses in closing. Verse 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, and we'll talk about that a little later. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God 
and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You see, Jesus, Mark, it, not, Mark is wise in his writing, but God is more wise in the planning of this because Jesus was validated and validated and validated. And after that final validation, after that foreshadowing of the defeat of Satan, Jesus goes and he preaches, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You see, it's only after we see the authority of Jesus we're called to respond by believing in him. That's why this series is called, Who is Jesus? Because in order to respond rightly, we need to answer that question. You see, the world needs to answer the question, who is Jesus? And what the world doesn't know is that wherever they are, whatever they believe, they've already answered that question. They've either answered it blindly and have rebelled against Jesus, or they've answered it rightly and have chosen to worship Jesus. Actually, Sean found a tweet today that was really good, and I just remembered it right now. Um, and I'm going to read it to you guys, unless Sean has it faster than I do. We must, here, here it is. We must learn again to spell out the question, who is Jesus? Everything else is a distraction by Ernst, some German name. But, but, but I, want you, I want you guys to know that. And he put it in such a, a great way. Everything else is a distraction to how you view Jesus Christ. And you may say, churches always talk about Jesus, but, but do you get the importance of who Jesus is? Do you get that he was God who came to earth to die for your sins? If hell and heaven, death and life are at stake, we better have a clear picture of who this man is. We better bank our dollar on responding rightly to who Jesus is. Because not only is this Jesus a person, but he's unique. Not only is the gospel a message, but its message is unique. You see, it's different from anything else you'll ever hear from culture. It's different than anything else you'll ever hear, even in the Old Testament. Because you may hear people telling you to repent of your sins. You may hear people telling you to believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. You may hear people asking you to respond. But when Jesus himself, after being validated before God, said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe, he wasn't simply preaching a message, he was preaching himself to the cross. Because you see, Jesus was the means to his own message. Without the cross, there would be no repentance. Without the cross, there would be no gospel. And Jesus knew that full well. And this is the final point tonight and what will prove to be the overwhelming point of the gospel of Mark is that Jesus is the gospel. Gospel just meaning good news. You see, I love how Mark starts this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, for Mark, the gospel isn't a gathering. For Mark, the gospel isn't a creedal system. The gospel isn't a story. The gospel is the person of Jesus Christ. Without Jesus, we have no good news. But with Jesus, we have everything. 
See, I hope you don't simply hear a preacher through this series telling you to believe, but I pray you see that God himself came to this earth, conquered Satan, and died on a cross so that you may believe the gospel for himself. This isn't my message to you. This is God's message to you. One that you will ultimately be held responsible. So what do you do with this message? What does our campus do with this message? I want you to pray that Jesus shows himself to you as who he really is. And that's a prayer that can be offered as someone who has been a Christian for a long time, as we will never have a clear picture of Christ here on this earth. And I long for the day when we see Christ with resurrected eyes and those final scales of humanity fall off and we see Jesus in a spectacular new light. But we could pray for that growth right now. And you could pray that as someone who's skeptical, who's never really understood who Jesus is, who's skeptical to this whole religion thing, who thinks it's nice, but it doesn't really shape what I do with my life. It doesn't shape my passions and desires. I pray for you. I pray with you that through the course of this series, Christ is made bold before you. That you respond rightly to the person and work of Christ. You see, what GCF is about isn't about gathering It's not about simply studying the Bible or hearing the word preached. It's about people knowing and responding to Jesus well. And so in this introduction, I want to challenge you, respond well. Pray that this semester, the Holy Spirit works in your heart and has grace on you to respond to who Jesus is. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we need to know these things. And Lord, even um, for those who, ha- who, who are Christians, who are raised in the church, looking at these stories in Mark is nothing new for us. It's things we're greatly familiar with. It's, it's the introduction to the book. Nothing has happened yet. And yet there is no greater introduction than an introduction to Jesus because he is God himself. The gospel come to earth to die in the flesh, to save those who are lost, to the glory of God the Father. And so Lord, I pray for our first meeting here this year. I pray you do marvelous things in our midst in 2014. And not because we desire to become bigger, but because we desire to make more worshipers of you. We desire for our campus to be able to answer the question, who is Jesus? And to say boldly with Mark that this is the Son of God, the gospel himself. Lord, stir us to worship. Lead us in righteousness. Press us to preach. We pray this in your name.